Hello, I'm Derek Bobbitt, and this is Intern X Founder, connecting students with founders, getting insights straight from the C-suite. Let's meet our guest today. Hi, yeah, I'm Padraig O'Leary. Padraig is an academic turned founder currently based out of Valencia, Spain. His current venture, Query Lair, is setting the standard for data rights infrastructure for the internet. With data rights and privacy in the headlines every day, it is no surprise a talented founder like Padraig is backed by the same investors like success stories like Pipedrive, Twilio, Kickstarter, Cloudflare, Zendesk, Revolut, TransferWise, Indeed, and Gumtree. Wow, that is quite a list. And combined with his expertise and vision, Querlayer is sure to be a recipe for success. Their aim is to lead a new generation of data-driven businesses that offer the benefits of using personal data while ensuring individuals' privacy. But what is the current state of data rights and what direction is it going in the future? We'll get into this more in today's episode of InternX Founder. Special thanks to Evolve Talent for sponsoring today's episode. Evolve Talent is your flexible, global, on-demand, in-house recruiting team, helping startups, scale-ups, and enterprises using a no-commission recruiting model. Their success is determined by hiring the right person for you every time. It's great to have you here, Padraig. Welcome. So today we're talking about the future of data rights, but before we get into that, you got your start in academia. Uh, what drew you to this career path? Yeah, firstly, Derek, great to be on. I'm pretty excited about this journey uh, that you're going on with this podcast. So it's, it's a real honor uh, from my perspective to be the inaugural guest. Um, yeah, so so uh, I suppose uh, in terms of what drew me to academia, um, you know, I, I, probably I was always uh, studious. Um, I enjoyed school, um, had a ball at university and um, I suppose, you know, there was several influences around me uh, suggested the academic path as a potential route and, and, and uh, I started down on that path uh, as soon as I finished my degree. Um, yeah, so I did, I did a, a PhD um, in Lero, the Irish Software Research Centre. Um, and then from there, I did a postdoc in Brazil. Uh, with a research group that were um, focused on, on, on a particular aspect of, of, of software reuse. Um, and then I did a research fellowship um, and followed that by um, a teaching position in the University of Adelaide in Australia. Wow, that's um, amazing, honestly. So you got the start, you had this like background, you did all these research projects. When did you decide it was time to leave academia and go out on your own to the startup world? Yeah, so so I probably did I probably did ten years on the academic path post degree, um, and I must say I, I loved it. Um, I loved so much aspects of of, of research and, and and just the environment. Um, but I think you know, and, and this is something that often happens. Uh, I see it in you know in a lot of let's say my classmates from my undergraduate, which is you know as you progress through your career in life you know you're you're naturally the whole system is kind of pushing you for that next step and, and often the that next step that promotion can actually move you further away from the thing that you love which could be you know let's say if you're a software developer it could be the actual act of coding as opposed to management um or in my case it was it was doing research and really you know doing a deep dive on a particular problem um, yeah, and I, I suppose as I moved uh, further down the academic 
uh, career path, uh, I was less and less time focused on particular problems that that I was passionate about solving. Um, yeah, so so I, I think I, I saw startups are going into the startup world as a way of of giving me the opportunity to identify a particular problem and and, and really doubling down on it. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think I think that was for me that was the primary motivation. Yeah, that's awesome. And last time we spoke, you mentioned this um, really interesting philosophy when it came to coming up with ideas, you know, coming from a background in academia, talking about how you like to really have a deep dive in research and solving problems, but that when it comes to creating ideas, it isn't about having that aha moment that a lot of people like, you know, attribute their success to, but it's more about a growing area that, you know, that an idea can, can come from. Can you expand more on this? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that was something we touched on when we when we first chatted. You asked me, you know, where did I where did I get my my ideas for you know you know to for a particular startup? Um, but I, I think in in my case, it, it's what I generally find is that that I, I have a particular interest in an area, you know, and 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 as opposed to like waiting for that perfect moment and going right, okay, you know this is the problem and, and now I'm going to, now I'm going to solve that problem. The issue with that mindset is it's very inflexible and, and, it, and it, it weds you to the problem in a way that makes you, makes it difficult to, to listen to what the market is telling you. Whereas um, what I found is, you know, let's say my general interest is in data, data applications, I'm focusing on particular verticals around data applications, whether that might be, um, you know, machine learning, uh, usage of data to drive some outcomes or privacy, as in this case, you know, go into a particular area. And ideally, it's an emerging area um, and, and, and then identify what are some of the main pains in that area and, you know, and, and kind of iterate around that area until you find the, the, the pain that resonates most with a particular, um, uh, you know, collection of, of customers or companies that you might be trying to solve it for. Yeah, it's interesting, like going mm -hmm. to an emerging area. So, you know, you have this area, you have this idea or industry you're interested in. Um, what skills do you need to learn as you grew as a founder in order to really like take those ideas and make it happen in your startups? Yeah. So. You know, I think as a founder, um, there's huge advantages to being a generalist. Uh, you know, and often I think we're all taught and, and particularly, you know, uh, let's say interns as they're going, you know, through their own academic journey is that, you know, specialization, you know, focus on particular, you know, do, do you know, become a specialist in a particular area. And no doubt that that is valuable, but, but generalists can often be overlooked in terms of the, the value that they can bring, particularly to an early stage organization. And as a founder, you need to be a generalist. Um, you know, you need to have a level of understanding around such a wide range of topics, not, and not a level whereby you need to solve all the problems that come up, but you need to have a level of understanding whereby you know the pieces that you're missing. So if that be marketing or accounting or sales or, or you name it, I think as a founder, 
you need to know what are all the pieces of the, the jigsaw without knowing how to build each particular piece. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, becoming that generalist, that was probably, you know, for me, you know, going on this, this entrepreneurial path for me, that, that's been the, the biggest learning curve. Interesting. Because it's interesting, I've talked to a couple people lately and they're all like, you need to focus on like a specific area or like when you're studying, instead of trying to take all these different classes and be a generalist, you need to focus on like gaining a skill set and focusing on specific things. So it's interesting that you mentioned that being a generalist is beneficial. But I mean, when it comes to this, I mean, you may be hiring specialists or, you know, people that focus on specific areas of founder. So I guess the next question I'd have is how have others affected your entrepreneurial journey? Because no one does it alone. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of 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 query layer, um, you know, there's there's four others on this journey with me. Um, there's based in Valencia, in Spain, where I'm based, and um, you know, I mean, from Christoph, I uh, I learn every day around you know uh, data, data rights, data privacy, such a like a practical. He's such a practitioner. It's, it's, it's such a, a kind of a deep level of understanding of, of, of the pain that companies have in this space. And then, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm joined by, 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 by three wonderful engineers and Gabrielle Gilberto and Murillo, who, um, um, yeah, who I, I learn from those guys every day as well. Um, I think like, you know, I mean, more, more broadly, um, I think you know influences are, are who I learn from uh, as a founder. I think a lot of that comes from 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 your background, um, and I think as a founder, one of the most impor- important properties that that any founder needs to have is is resilience. You know that kind of like doggedness that makes you keep pushing the the boulder up the hill you know when everything else is is pushing in the opposite direction and i think resilience it's 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 a difficult skill to learn i think you know it, it's something that you have to you have to train inside you from your life experiences um and yeah i mean i i think in my case i i've been uh, very lucky in, in in some of the influences on my not only my career but personally that have have um, I think helped me to to build a certain level of resilience that that is probably the single most important factor to being a founder. Yeah, interesting. So I guess the next thing I think is you know you have these people around you, you have this you know resilience that they're helping you build, you have this team that's helping you to solve these problems. But what are some, like, are there any resources that you've found useful that you wish you knew about earlier? Like I know, for example, in my case, I've been doing a lot of design work for some logos for startups and some pitch decks. And I've used Canva that I didn't even know about a couple months ago. So are there any resources that you wish you knew about earlier that could maybe help a young founder? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's different, there's, there's some of that classic entrepreneurial let's say books or are, mm-hmm. are, are taught leaders you know things like zero to one by peter thiel or mm-hmm. the hard thing about hard things or or, or, or steve blank and, and some of the work he's done on on you know kind of early stage um lean startup thinking um 
yeah, so I mean, all, I think all of those are, are, are definitely part of the education process and, you know, help you, let's say, to not repeat some of the mistakes that have been well trodden. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I mean, there's so many tools out there that you could be using and resources. Um, but I would say, yeah, I mean, but, but quite limited, I, I think, in terms of, you know, impact on your overall success. I think it, um, it's, it's much more fundamental about, you know, learning to execute, just getting started, you know, start moving the needle a little bit every day, um, you know, getting out, talking to customers, testing some of the assumptions that you may have, um, you know, and, and, and facing the, the pretty harsh feedback you get from someone when you ask them for money. You know, there's, there's a saying, it says, uh, you know, if you want advice, then um, ask someone for money. And if you want um, money, ask someone for advice. Mm, you know, and that's uh, the idea. The best way to learn is about where you are in terms of, of the service or the product that you're offering is to, is to have that conversation about, about, about charging, about, about how much someone is willing to pay for something. Yeah, it's huge, especially when you're doing customer discovery. So I guess when you talk about getting advice and having those like hard conversations, that feedback, um, what are some major obstacles that you had to overcome in your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't have to go back very far to, to think about um, obstacles. You know, I mean, we face them every day. Um, I mean, even in terms of, of query layer and, and, you know, query layer is still a very organization, but let's say uh, last year when, when we, when we, we founded and started, um, we had great early success with, um, you know, we got some great, um, investors on board. You mentioned them, some of them, uh, at the outset, um, and then we had some great early traction with 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 uh, a particular financial institute. It was actually it's the fourth largest in in Spain, um, and you know we put a huge amount of effort in. That was going to be our kind of like our reference case. You know, it was going to announce, you know, the success of our technology within this particular client was going to be you know how we were going to announce ourselves into the market. And so we were, you know, five or six months, you know, you know, building the technology, you know, um, working towards this particular use case. We had a pilot, POC was underway. And then, and then the, the client announced that they were being acquired and that all POCs and pilots were being, you know, su suspended indefinitely. Oh, no. And so, you know, that we had put in, you know, six months of our runway, you know, a very time sensitive runway, you know, for an early stage company, you know, putting a lot of resources into to making this a success. And then suddenly we found ourselves, um, you know, in autumn with, um, you know, probably a technology or a platform that was like overly focused on one particular use case. You know, we, we now had a, like an unsuccessful early pilot or POC, which also doesn't sound great. And, 
Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, an obstacle like that at such an early stage can, you know, can really uh, knock a, a startup, um, you know, on its, on its back. Um, but we, yeah, so I mean, we, 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 we basically, we, we pivoted, pivoted the platform, pivoted the positioning, um, you know, we had to throw away, you know, uh, so much work and effort that, that we'd originally put in and, and, and then just, just basically dust ourselves off and, and go again. And that's what we did. So at Christmas, we all went away. We had a hard conversation before the Christmas holidays and said, right, guys, you know, as a team, um, you know, we just have to dust ourselves off and, and go again. We believed in the vision. We believed in what we were going to do. But now we had a lot less time um, in order to achieve it. Um, and so we, we, we pivoted the technology and we went back out to the market in, in March. And uh, yeah, for, for the last two or three months, we, we've been able to get like um, some, some, some great traction with um, European scale-ups. Um, and yeah, and it feels now like, again, we're, we're back on the, the upward, upward curve. But, you know, that's just the life of, of an early stage company. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've learned along the way is, is, is you know not to take the the highs are never so high as you see you think or the knocks or the lows are never as low. And I think uh, you know that's something that comes with probably there's an element of just getting older, right? And you know you've seen the highs and the lows a bit more, so you you don't tend to take them um, to such extremes. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, um, yeah, it's just it's just part of it, um, but. Thankfully, we're now in, in quite a good place. And I, I think, it, you know, it just, it actually, I think as a team, it's just built confidence in us as a team that, you know, that we can stick these things out and, you know, and get through the tough times. And, and hopefully now uh, the future is, is looking bright. Yeah, again, going back to that resilience and really just being able to, you know, figure out the problem, quickly pivot. I mean, that's a skill that every entrepreneur needs to have, especially a young one and an early stage startup. So I guess now we go on to today's specific topic for you. So the future of data rights. So, you know, I don't really know a lot. I mean, you see the headlines every day where it's like data privacy, this or a data leak here. But before we get into that, can you just tell me what is personal data and what are data rights? Yeah, sure. So, so personal data is, is any information that relates to uh, an identified or an identifiable individual. So, I mean, that's a very broad term because personal data is very broad. So that could be something as specific as your tax number, your social security number, your name, your address. But it could also be things as abstract as your, you know, um, or, you know, using like computer vision, they can identify people using their, you know, like their style of walking. It could be how you use your, your, your browser online. It could be, you know, the fingerprint of your computer. It's, it's such a broad range of, of, of types of data that would fall into, would fall in under this category. But if you can tie a particular, um, you know, piece of data to an individual, then that falls under the remit of being considered personal data. Interesting. And what about data rights? How would you define data rights? Yeah, so 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 data rights is 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 the legal and 
ethical entitlement of individuals to have control over their personal data. Um, so data rights give customers or users authority over their data. Um, yeah, and it, it, it basically says that as an individual, you know, your personal data belongs to you and that you may lease it or you may, you know, um, or a company may borrow your, your personal information, but you never lose the fact that you own that data, no matter what the company or the controller or the consumer of that data does. Uh, there is like this core principle there that says that is your data, that is your name, that is your date of birth, that is your, you know, whatever it may be. Um, yeah, and I mean, fundamentally, we, we believe that that data rights and, and control over your personal data is, is a fundamental human right. Mm -hmm. um, and we think for a lot of companies that their customers probably think the same. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see all these problems where people are getting their addresses leaked. It's like, that was mine. I never don't remember actually agreeing to giving that away, but you know, it's a little fine text you have to read. So I guess the next question would be, how do we control access to our personal data? I mean, in the cases of the leaks, why is it so hard for me to access my personal data from a company? Yeah. So, so, I mean, uh, you know, and, and you, um, you know, you mentioned that there in your very question, the kind of, you know, that, that fine-grained uh, privacy policy where it might describe that you're actually giving up your data. So right now, in nearly all cases, um, you control access to your personal data through um, notice and consent model. And so what we mean by that is notice is that as you are, you know, going around, let's say, the internet on a daily basis, you know, trying out different services, registering, then you are notified by that company uh, via, a, you know, a privacy policy or sometimes terms and conditions that this is all the personal data that they will be collecting. This is all the different things, what they will do with your, your data and who they will share it with. Mm -hmm. um, and then you consent to that, okay, as part of an upfront consent and then, you know, your kind of leasing control of your personal information to that company. Um, so, so that's the model as it, as it is right now. There's a few very obvious issues with that model. The first being is when was the last time you actually read a privacy policy? Um, you know, they, like these things are not designed for um, the individual in mind, you know, uh, they're designed to protect the organization that is you're interacting with. Um, so they're designed from a legal perspective to minimize the risk of the organization. And that's why, you know, this, this whole, you know, this whole approach that we currently have to, to um, let's say, uh, 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 giving companies access or control over our personal data is, is so flawed at the moment. And that's one of the things that, that we're quite motivated to, to try and improve. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess the next question I think is, you know, these companies, it's all based on, you know, trying to minimize their risk, but why do you think companies should care about data rights? How does it benefit them to care? Yeah. So in some ways, I think, um, you know, the lazy answer is, is from, is the legal argument, right? So, 
I mean, you could throw a dart at a globe and, and, and you know, you would hit a region in the world where modern digital data rights are either being enacted into law or are being in the process of, of, of being enacted. And we see that in the, in the states right now where individual states are, you know, some of them have um, recently introduced recent Californian type you know, data privacy legislation, or a lot of them are in, are in the process of, of doing so, are discussing it. And there's even talk about, you know, a federal, um, uh, you know, um, modern digital data rights um, uh, regulation being passed. So, so, so that's a legal argument. It's because they have to, right? And so there's, there's a legal perspective, but, you know, I actually think there's much better reasons and there's much better arguments than that uh, for companies to care about data rights. And, and the two biggest ones that jump to mind are, are the first is this, the rise of what we like to term of privacy actives. And so privacy actives are a segment of the customers for any enterprise or business that, um, care about their personal data. They make decisions about the services or the businesses that they used based on how they perceive that company handles their personal data. Okay, so these are digital natives. Uh, they're, you know, you could call them sophisticated data users. You know, they're like people who, you know, who are just comfortable, you know, with this concept of their data. Um, and generally they tend to be late twenties, early thirties, professional, um, you know, high disposable income. And so for particular types of businesses, such as B2C, which is, you know, um, uh, consumer facing businesses mm -hmm. and, and the lifestyle businesses like e-commerce or ed tech, then, you know, this customer segment um, can be, you know, a large part of their, um, of their of their customer base where they, where they derive a lot of their their revenue from mm. so that's the first reason and then the second reason is um because we're entering a whole new wave of of of, of data rights we call it the, the the second wave first being driven by by things like gdpr and ccpa but now big tech the likes of ios and apple you know I mean, it's hard to ignore it, but the marketing push from Apple right now from a privacy posture perspective is having knock-on effects on how personal data is being used all across the internet. And so businesses have technical requirements coming from Apple um, when they release an, an app on the iOS store. And, and that it's also driving this um, customer education where customers are, are expecting that companies will will respect their data rights. Um, yeah, and then I think, you know, there's one other element of this kind of new wave of data rights. And this is the rise of, of zero party data. So generally you have zero party data, first party data and third party data in terms of data that you get about your customers. And zero party data is data that is volunteered from an individual. So an individual gives you, they knowingly provide information, their name, their address, their credit card number, you know. Um, and so increasingly 
companies have to go directly to the individual and, and, and convince them to offer up personal data, zero party data. And in order to do that, they need to build a relationship built on trust and transparency. Um, and so this is you know, another factor in this rise of data rights and why you know, we think that this is going to be the, the, the privacy decade and that companies can you know, have to adapt or lose access to um, personal data. Interesting. So I guess, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of benefits to like, you know, being transparent and like offering access to all these things. So why do you think it's difficult for companies to offer data rights right now? And why do you think business leaders are getting it wrong? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think there's two reasons. So I I think there's the whole compliance narrative that has dominated this idea of, you know, let's just be compliant with, um personal data therefore um once we're compliant then that's job done you know we've ticked the box and and let's move on to to more important things um you know and 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 as i already mentioned you know this is the wrong narrative for business leaders to have Uh, the second part of it is it's difficult for for companies to offer data rights because it's just it's it's technically a really hard thing to do um, like we've spent 20 or 30 years, you know, building data infrastructure that collects and generates data. You know, you've primary data and then you've derived data. And now we're seeing for the first time that, that the world actually wants us to, to, to support the return leg for that data. So it's like saying, you know, you know, we built this highway to collect all this data and now we want you know, these, these data infrastructure products to, to say, you know, what's the return leg of that data look like? How do we respond to deletion requests or, or individuals who say they want a copy of their data? Um, and it's actually very difficult to, to retrieve personal information from a company. It's not as simple as the data collection process because a lot of the data is, is, is very difficult to find. It's been derived, it's been, it's hard to know when did the when was it personal data and when has it been derived into something which is now you know abstracted away from being personal data. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so so we'd love to see a world where where you know all companies could offer you know a very prominent uh, my data rights button you know on 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 you know anywhere where they're taking in personal data, but um yeah we've we've you know, while there is an opportunity there, there's still a long way to go in terms of the technical difficulty, in terms of, you know, companies uh, realizing that the future is private. Um, And then, um, you know, convincing organizations that a strong privacy posture is not just the right thing to do, but it's actually the smart thing to do from a business perspective. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I say that the my privacy button, when you said that, I immediately saw it like, that would be amazing. The transparency you have in all the apps, that'll be amazing. I'm actually working with a startup right now. So I may actually recommend that like, Hey, when you're collecting all this data, maybe make a little section to make it so it's extra transparent. So 
I guess that's Lisa. Next thing is which business leaders will get this right. I mean, you're really close to this. Who do you think is doing it well? And what do you think the business leaders that will be getting it right will be doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've been very lucky in some of the, you know, um, companies that, that we've been able to, to, to kind of build relationships with these, these past few months. Um, and so, so these companies are already internally, you know, even before we approached them, they were already having internal conversations around, you know, how they could, you know, use privacy posture as a way of differentiating themselves within the market, how they could use it as an enabler, how it's, it's not like, it's not a, a cross to bear, but something which actually differentiates them from the competition. Um, and so I think, um, you know, a number of, let's say, um, digital native um, scale-ups within, within Europe that, that we've been particularly focused on for the last few months, you know, um, I think uh, for these companies, you know, they're already ahead of the curve. They're already thinking about, you know, the coming uh, I suppose the coming decade and uh, how the relationship with customer data is going to change. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, as I, as I already mentioned, I, I think this is, a, and you know, it's an unstoppable tide. And uh, the first wave was driven by the regulatory changes, um, you know, and, and that's still, you know, that's still occurring as we look across the globe. But this second wave is, is going to be harder, it's going to be faster, it's going to be more brutal in terms of, of um, companies needing to adapt to how, you know, I suppose, how they handle personal data. And, um, and uh, if they don't adapt, uh, the effect that it can have on the relationships that they have with their customers, bottom line. Interesting. So... The next question you mentioned a couple times in our call before a data rights infrastructure. Can you talk more about that and how that kind of relates to what we've been speaking about? Yeah. So, um, without trying to get too technical, um, so when we think of, of data rights infrastructure, we think of a layer that sits within the organization's data stack. Mm -hmm. So, um, within any organization, you have, you have their data stack, which consists of all the different layers um, that enables that organization to work with data. So there's a storage layer, it could be a security layer, an access layer, an application layer, an analytics layer. Um, and so what we see is that there's an emerging new layer within that data stack, which we call the data rights layer. And this layer is an enabler. It enables an organization to allow an individual or a customer to exercise their data rights. And then this layer sees the fulfillment of those data, data rights across the data stack. So if, for instance, a, an access or a deletion request comes in from a customer, then across all of the different back in databases that an organization might have across all of their cloud vendors, across all of their backup systems. Mm -hmm. That request 
has to be executed. And a data rights layer orchestrates that execution of that request across all those different systems. And then it's end to end. So it then returns back to the, to the individual. And, and you know, it tells them whether their request was, has been executed, or maybe it hasn't for, for, you know, could be for a variety of different reasons, or if they were looking for an access request, it gives their data back to them, but it gives it their data back to them in a way that, that actually they can make sense of the data that was being held. Um, you know, it, it's funny, I, I did a, I did a, an access request on, 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 um, on, you know, my Facebook data, um, uh, probably about 12 months ago now, mm -hmm. but, you know, I got back this, like, you know, two gigabytes zip file that was, you know, firstly it was zipped. So, you know, you could imagine, I don't know, you, you know, a parent, your mother, you know, someone maybe who is not digital native, and you know you're trying to explain to them how to open a zip file and then once they open it they now have to try and make sense of of that data um yeah anecdotally a, a friend of mine um reported to to have done um an access request um with a service that that said that the data was encrypted and they got back a five gigabyte dump of encrypted data you know, that they couldn't access. And in a way, like it was that company, like what was that company trying to achieve? Well, I suppose they were trying to show that, look, your data is encrypted. We, you know, we can't read it. But to me, it seemed like such a, a, a long, you know, a, a convoluted way of trying to communicate to an individual that their data was being encrypted within the organization. You know, there must be a better way. Um, yeah, and there are some of the problems that, that we're working on uh, within Query Layer. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it's a pretty good segue. You're talking about that layer right there. That is Query Layer. So I guess the next question is, you know, why did you start Query Layer? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, so it probably comes back uh, a little to, to, to some of my, my past. But um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I've probably been working with uh, data applications for about 10 years, um, 10 years in, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, an early project, um, I was um, head of data at the Center for Applied Research in Connected Health, um, which was uh, based out of um, University College Dublin. And within that project, we, we built this, this smart health deployment for uh, people with early onset dementia. So what we were doing was we, at various um, devices uh, in their home. Um, and we were collecting data about the um, And in some of the interviews we were having with participants in, the, in that study, you know, I think it kind of shocked me as, you know, I was in my, let's say late twenties or, or, or mid twenties, you know, and I had a very kind of convoluted you know, a kind of an offhand attitude towards personal data, you know, because I was like, ah, you know, you know, a few embarrassing photos from college maybe, but like pretty much I felt I had nothing else to hide, right? Yeah. But, you know, here I could see within the patients and their family members, just the sensitivity that they had around the data that was being collected. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that for them, 
you know, there was there was such a, a nervousness about you know who had access to the data and 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 um, yeah, and I think you know in something like that you really build an appreciation for why you know why privacy and and personal data matters. Um, I think you really have to put yourself in in situations like that to to really get a deep appreciation for um, some of the reasons why personal data and, and data privacy. You know, it, it's something that it's not enough to say. Well, it doesn't really affect me, but um, it's something that that we all, as consumers and individuals, we need to drive. We need to say that that you know, heck, this this actually really matters, mm-hmm. and, and and I'll make decisions about the companies that that I use or the services that I use uh, based on how I think they're going to handle my personal data. And ultimately, that would be the big driver of of data rights. That's the most powerful force in the universe, you know, customer demand. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, yeah, how do I, why did I start Quirily or just, you know, um, I, I, you know, I just really wanted to do something in this space. Um, and, uh, and I think the answer to, to data rights, I think ultimately it lies within the enterprise um, because you know, there's various initiatives and some really great ones around helping individuals get control back over their data. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I'm a bit more of a pragmatist, but I think ultimately enterprises are, for the large part, going to be storing and holding our data. They have the expertise, they have the motivation they have. You know, there's so many other factors why, why it's going to be enterprises that will ultimately deliver data rights um, to the individual. And so, and I think the majority of companies actually want to to respect uh, personal data and they want to offer data rights to their customers. And so that if we help them do that, uh, we make it we make it easy and we you know we solve some of the problems that they have with actually providing that capability, then in a small way we can contribute to you know to data rights on the internet. That's amazing. I love that. So I guess, I mean, we're trying to solve these issues. Um, do you have any recommendations for young entrepreneurs who are looking to get into the space of data privacy and data rights and looking to improve the privacy user experience as a whole? Yeah. I mean, there's so many problems in this space. Um, I think, um, I mean, I think the best way to start would be to, to, to just, to educate themselves, um, you know, if they're looking for internships, um, you know, there's there's growing uh, privacy practitioners is still a, an emerging area, and um, that requires, you know, uh, you know, a certain amount of legal competency, a certain amount of business acumen, a certain amount of technical knowledge, um, and I think it's a really interesting space. Um, and so I would say, you know, maybe look for internship positions in, in these type of companies if you can. Uh, and from there, learn um, and see it firsthand some of the problems that companies have um, in, in, you know, building a, a privacy, a strong privacy posture, you know, within the organization. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I think, you know, it's the best place to start. Just getting involved and getting into the space and educating yourself. 
yeah. well, you know, yeah. when you're students and you're an intern, you tend to have a lot of time. So it's just <laughs> to ask. So we talked about a lot today. We talked about resilience. We talked about data rights. We talked about data, personal data, like infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. If you had one piece of advice for a young founder who's just letting get started in general, what would it be? Um, it's a hard one. Yeah, it is a hard one. I would say, you know, um, just just don't quit. You know, keep going. Um, I think eventually you'll find your way. You know, some will find it quicker than others. Some will find shortcuts. Some will find it straight away. But others will find it just true, um, you know, doggedness by trying things, failing, you know, dusting yourself off, trying again. And just by, you know, eventually, eventually you will just, even if it's just by pure dumb perseverance, you will get there. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, if, if um, being a founder is something that you're passionate about and, and you really, you know, feel that this is something that you want to do, then, then just don't quit. It's not how many times you fall down. It's how many times you get back up. Awesome. Well, Podrick, <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure having you today. I really appreciate it. And I hope to keep in touch. Thank you, Derek. Enjoy awesome. it. Have a great day.